Let's read in Hebrews chapter 13. We'll read from verse number 5. Hebrews chapter 13, reading from verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, and today, and forever. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Now that will do just as an introductory reading, but we're going to be looking at various scriptures as we look at this subject of the immutability of the Lord Jesus. Just to remind you as well that last night we began with two scriptures that spoke to us about the importance of learning and abiding in the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine about Christ, the doctrine of Christ. And 2 John verse 9 was one of these verses, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. And the other verse I gave you was 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Let me give you a quotation just as we start off. A couple of quotations. The first is by A.W. Pink, and it's from his book, Gleanings in the Godhead. If you're reading, it's pages 28 to 29. And in this uh, quotation, listen to what Pink says. He says that the God of this century, and that was when he was alive, the God of this century no more resembles the sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the midday sun. The God who is talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school, mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences, is a figment of human imagination, an invention of maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside the pale of Christendom form gods of wood and stone, while millions of heathen inside Christendom manufacture a god out of their carnal minds. Strong stuff. Spurgeon, on the 7th of January, 1855, preached, I think, his first sermon. He was 20 years old when he preached this sermon. And he chose preaching at New Park Street Chapel in Southwark. He preached on Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 which is the text, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. That was his opening text. And the narrative of this biography says that he was 20 years old and in his introduction, his introductory remarks to his sermon, this is the language of a 20-year-old man. It's unbelievable. He said, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of God. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Go plunge yourself in the God's Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in its immensity and you shall come forth as from a place of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. He's 20 years old. 
So a 20-year-old young man, who was an exceptional young man, nevertheless understood this. That when we try to find answers, and when we try to find quick fixes to a lot of our issues in life, we're missing the main point. The main point is not to go to all sorts of resources, or to go to all sorts of literature, or to speak to all sorts of people, but the main source for our life issues is God. He is the answer. Not that he just provides the answer, he himself is the answer. And there is a sufficiency in himself, in our relationship with him, and the expansion of our appreciation of him and that relationship, which meets our need. So it's not that he's like giving out prizes or presents or uh, he's giving out things that will help us and we go to him to receive things from him. Rather, we go to him to be ministered by him and of him. So in himself is the resource to meet our need. And what Spurgeon was saying was that whether it's times of trial, <coughs> sorrow, grief, whether it's times of encouragement, whether it's times of joy, we find the answer to all of these things in a contemplation of him. And this is perhaps sometimes where we lose this big idea, which is the sufficiency of God. Not just what God has provided in terms of structure or relationships, not just what God has given to us in terms of guidance for daily life, but actually God gives himself to us. He gives him, us himself. And he invites us, he encourages us to learn of him, to rest in him, to joy in him, which requires study, contemplation, thought, application, and it all comes from the word of God as we seek to learn and know him. This is what Paul really was talking about when he says that I may know him. I may know him. Paul knew all the doctrine of the Bible. In fact, most of the New Testament had been channeled through him and written by him. He knew it. So he was not talking about being more educated in the doctrine of God. He was talking about getting to know God. Knowing him. Now that may sound a little vague, but hopefully as we go through this we'll see just exactly what's in my mind. You think about Moses in the Old Testament. <coughs> Moses was a man who knew so much about God. In fact, Moses is speaking, when you go to the Old Testament, and he's speaking face to face with the Lord. Now that probably would have been enough for most of us. To have a face-to-face -face encounter with God in that Old Testament context was an unusual event and a very special event. Moses had stood before the burning bush and he'd heard the voice of God. Now, there's no doubt about it. And God had revealed himself to Moses in a way that he had never revealed himself to anyone else up to that point. Now you would think that maybe would have been enough for most of us. To learn a new name of God. To learn something about God that no one had ever learned before. Direct divine revelation. Now, that was unusual, but Moses experienced that. You would have thought in Moses' life that having stood before that bush that burned and was not consumed, hearing the voice of God, and then knowing the power of God. You remember that he stood before the Red Sea, held out his staff, and the waters parted, and he took a nation through a sea, dry shod. And he saw the whole cream of the Egyptian army, the biggest military power of its day, crushed and destroyed in its wake. So he heard the voice of God. He saw the power of God in a unique way that no one had ever seen on earth at that point. So this is a man who knew a lot about God. This is a man who'd had lots of experience with God. And then you think about another experience when he was entrusted with the law of God. So he goes up Mount Sinai and he has that experience twice and he's given into his hands the Ten Commandments, the law of God and he's entrusted with that to communicate that to the people of God. Now you then come to this point in his experience 
where God is speaking to him in the aftermath of the golden calf incident when he came down the mount with the two tablets of stone. And there's a conversation between the two of them. Exodus chapter 33, that conversation takes place. Now, what is the expressed desire of Moses' heart? Remembering what I've said. Was it to revisit past experience? Was it to say, take me back to the burning bush? No. Was it, take me back to the shores of the Red Sea? Let me see your power. Let me hear your voice. Let me revisit these past experiences that I've had with you. But rather, he says this, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that, and he pleads for the nation, consider that this nation is thy people. And he says to him, I beseech thee, this is his desire, show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. You see, Moses' expressed desire was to learn more, not of God's power, not to again hear God's voice, but he wanted to learn about God himself. Because glory speaks about the expression of essential attributes so that the glory of God is the display of the essential character of God. So when God's glory is seen, God's person is being demonstrated. God's character is on display. So when he says, show me thy glory, what he wants to know is, show me more about yourself. That was Moses' expressed desire. A man who had known so much. And in that, he is, like Paul, showing, and Paul, remember his ambition towards the end of his life expressed in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him. You see, Paul, you've already spoken to the Lord in the Damascus Road. That was unique. You've been constituted and commissioned as an apostle. That was unique as well in his circumstances. You've had these mysteries of the New Testament committed to your care. You've communicated them. You have taken the gospel into Europe for the first time. You've been shipwrecked. You've been near death. You've experienced all of these things surely now you're an old man surely now all you want to do is reflect in the past and reflect in God's goodness to you and reflect on what God has done and shown you and all the rest of it surely you're satisfied with that Paul is not satisfied and as an old man he's got this burning ambition that I may know him I may know him not that I may receive more revelation not that I may receive more service I may know him and there is this burning ambition that he would increase in his knowledge. And the practical experience of that knowledge of God. Listen to Jeremiah 9, verse 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now that's quite strong. The Lord is saying, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in this above all things, that you understand and know me. That's the pinnacle, that's the aim that is surely the aspiration, the highest aspiration of a child of God. Now, that by way of introduction, because that then leads us in again to our study, because we're trying to do a little of that in our studies. Now, this is not the kind of do not steal, do not kill type of ministry, which is necessary and appropriate. This is not the kind of um, simple um, staccato statements of behaviour modification. But rather, these short, sharp statements of behaviour modification that are in the New Testament are the end. They are not the end of itself. They are not everything, I should say. They are the end product. And they are the end of our understanding developing relationship so that our behaviour is modified, but it's modified by the right thing. It's modified by that which is sustained and that which is permanent. 
Otherwise, you change your behaviour this week and you change it back next week. It doesn't stick. So the permanent change is in character, which go from the outside in, doesn't work. But if you go from the inside out, it does work. So as we seek to learn more of God and of Christ, it is with view, our appreciation, inspiration, our desire to know him and to learn of him and to meditate upon him and feed upon him and rejoice in him and glorify him and praise him and worship him will not be from a background or a basis of ignorance. Or to use my synonyms from last night, will I ask you? No, I won't ask you. We're talking about them over breakfast again. It will not be based upon supposition or presumption. It will not be because I think the Bible says something like that somewhere. Or people say that. It will be because I know and have learned from myself that this is the God of the Bible. This is the saviour that I trust. And that from that personal knowledge of him, then my behaviour will be permanently changed for the better. Let's look then at this subject of the immutability of God and of Christ. Now, let's define terms. First of all, what does the word immutability mean? Now, it comes from a Latin verb for change, which is the word muta, M-U-T-A. And you see that in lots of words like mutation. And you understand that that scientific word mutation comes from that Latin verb for change. Webster in his dictionary defines immutability as never changing or varying. So when we think about the immutability of God, we could describe it in this way as the unchangeability of God. So we're speaking about the unchanging character, the unchangeability of God. So that, let me just use a couple of um, examples. When we say that our seasons are unvarying, they are constant, we would say they're unchangeable. Okay, we cannot change them. When we speak about some of the laws of nature, such as the law of gravity, we understand that, that it's constant, it is unchangeable. It's immutable. So just get that concept in your mind when we're speaking about immutability. We're speaking about unchangeability. We're speaking about that which is constant and unvarying. Now, by way of a general overview, if you're taking notes, now's the time to really start going for it, because the Bible repeatedly states that God is immutable, not using that word, but the principle that lies behind the word. He does not change. Now, he cannot because he cannot improve on absolute perfection, and he cannot decline in terms of his eternally fixed nature. So there's no improvement possible, and there is no decline possible. Now, in what way does he not change? Well, here are some ways. Number one, his person, who he essentially is, does not change. Malachi 3 verse 6, I, the Lord, change not. So he's not talking about other things. He does or has done or says. He's saying of himself, I do not change. Number two, his plans do not change. Psalm 33 verse number 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So his counsel and his plans don't change. Number three, his purpose does not change. The end in view does not change. Hebrews 6 verse number 7. So when God desired to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So he's speaking there about the unchangeable character of God's purpose. So his person does not change. His plans do not change. His purpose do not, does not change. That's my three Ps gone. Uh, number four, God does not change his mind like a man. Now, the potent expression there is like a man. God does not change his mind like a man. 
1 Samuel 15, verse number 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So he's different from us. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 15 uh, and try and dig into that. God does not change his mind like a man. Isaiah 31, verses 1 to 2, it's a similar text. The Holy One of Israel does not call back his words. Uh, One more, God does not change his calling or gifts. So that James chapter 1, verse 17, Romans chapter 11, verse 29, and Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable without repentance. James 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Okay? So just lodge these things in your mind about God. The fact that God does not change. His purpose doesn't change. His plans does not change. His calling does not change. His gifts do not change. He does not change his mind as a man changes his mind. One writer put it this way, God does not increase nor does he decrease. He does not improve or decline. He does not change due to some unforeseen circumstance because there are none to him. There are no emergencies to the one who is eternally all-knowing. His eternal purposes stand forever because he stands forever. He never reacts. He never reacts. Everything is done according to his eternal purpose, which was determined before ever he created time. He does what he pleases because what he pleases is good and right. Psalm 115 verses 1 to 3 expresses that. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Okay? Now, let's start digging into that. When we speak about the immutability of God and the unchangeableness of God, it does throw up some issues. Better not to ignore them, but rather to dig into them. Now, let me give you some evidences from the Bible of the immutability of God. Some proof texts. Psalm 102, if you look this up please, Psalm 102 verses 24 to 27. Just turn your Bibles please to Psalm 102. Now if you read in your New Testament, then... And in the book of Hebrews, you'll probably recognize some of these verses because some of these verses are quoted in the New Testament. But Psalm 102, verse 24 down through verse 27 says this, I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Now, what is being stated there is the contrast between the Lord and his creation. So the creation all around us is probably the most constant thing in our life. If you think about that. The environment in which we live now, we hear all about climate change and so on, but the actual environment of God's creation is the constant in our life. We depend upon the constants of creation. We depend upon the seasons. We depend upon the fact that there will be air to breathe. We depend upon the functioning of our body as it's been created and so forth. Our whole life existence depends upon the constants of our environment. When these constants are changed, we're in trouble. Okay? So if you take that which is most constant, most dependable for us, 
and contrast that with God, you find this, as it is said, that even although the creation is fantastic, it's been laid as a foundation, and the heavens are the work of his hands, they are going to perish. So the constants round about us will not endure. Now, that's good to know from an environment point of view and from a Green Party point of view. Let's be frank about it, it's a losing cause. Because you will not save the earth because the earth has been condemned. God has condemned it. doesn't mean you abuse it because it's God-given, but nevertheless, it's a lost cause thinking that you will preserve it. You won't. Because the earth and the environment is going to be consumed and destroyed and perish because God has determined that. It says, they shall wax old like a garment as a vesture shalt thou change them and they shall be changed. So this earth is going to be changed, not speaking about the minuscule changes that we might effect upon the environment, but speaking about the cataclysmic changes that God will effect upon this earth in moments of time. And he's going to do all of that. And despite that, it says they shall be changed, but thou art the same. So he is contrasted to that which he has created. Thy years shall have no end. Now that's not true of this earth. This earth is coming to an end. Everything we know on this earth is coming to an end. The whole fabric of the universe is going to be changed. But he will not. Now, here's the thing. If that is true, why would you ever play the long game in life and base your life and hopes and certainties about that which is not going to endure? You ever thought about that? It's not going to endure. It doesn't even make any sense. The short-termism in relation to eternity is striking. God, his years never end. He is eternal. He is unchanging. This earth, all that is in this earth, the fame, the money, the experiences, the relationships, everything is transitory. It's changing. And it will be changed. And it will perish. So why not sink yourself into the unchangeable God? Take the long view into eternity and not the short-term view. That's what I learned anyway from Psalm 102. Now, go over to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We've been doing this book in Bridge of Weir recently. Should be familiar to those of us from Bridge of Weir. Malachi chapter 3. Now, God is speaking through his prophet to his Old Testament people, and he's speaking in quite straight terms to them. And in verse number six, he has been speaking about the insufficiency of their worship, and he's been speaking about prophetic judgment and refining that will come upon the nation of Israel. And... He's speaking about judgment that they will also experience in verse number five. I will come near to you to judgment. There will be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, false swearers, those that oppress and so social injustice and so on. And in verse number six, having told them all about his judgment that's going to come upon them as a nation for their sin, for their unrighteousness, he says this. It's verse number six. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah, I am the self-existent one. I change not. Now, in that context, after reading all that judgment, you might think he would say, I change not, therefore I'm going to come and destroy you with judgment. No, he doesn't. It's the opposite. He says, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. You see, out of the self-existence of God, there naturally follows the immutability of God. Jehovah changes not. Why? He's self-existent. He requires no one, nothing, for his existence. He does not need to change. 
He has no environment that changes. And as a result, he always is. He is constant in himself. He is constant in his relationships. So he says to these sons of Jacob, because I am unchanging, you will not perish. Why? Because he had made covenant promises to them. And he won't break them. He won't break them. He does not change, so out of his immutability is the constant faithfulness of God to his word. Now that is another blessing that flows out of his immutability. Because he doesn't change, his word doesn't change. You can depend upon it, because you can depend upon him. Okay? James chapter 1 verse 17, another one. Let's go to this please. James chapter 1 and verse 17. Now, the, the, the first chapter of James is a chapter dealing with the issue of testing. The testing of God upon his people. When God puts us through experiences of testing to refine us and improve us as his people. To get rid of the rubbish and to promote that which is of Christ. Now, it's different from temptation, so he defines his terms. That's what chapter 1 is. And he puts a distinction between temptation and testing. Testing is of God. Testing is profitable. Testing is defined. Testing has a purpose that is of God. Temptation is of the flesh. Temptation is of Satan. Temptation is not of God and is never good. Now having said all of that, he comes to his final part of these definitions and says in verse 16, Do not err, my beloved brethren. So please do not accuse God of causing you to sin. Please do not accuse God of putting things in your life that tempted you to sin. Please do not think that God wants you to sin. And one of the reasons he says is this, don't get this wrong. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So he says this, but God never gives anything other than good gifts. Never bad. So it's not like Christmas or the failed birthdays. Mine is soon, by the way, 27th of June. And you know the idea when you buy something, you think you've done really well. I could give you examples. And you present it to your beloved, whoever that may be, and it's a total fail. It's like, oh, my goodness, can't believe that. And Or Christmas time, you're masking the disappointment. Not that I've ever done that, but I'm sure others must mask the disappointment of the presence and you give good gifts sometimes and sometimes you don't give good gifts take it away from that kind of present type of thing what you give to others in your relationship sometimes is good and sometimes is not good God's not like that think about this the God who's central to our life is the only person to use that word in our life who only gives good gifts and perfect gifts. What is right and good and what is wholly appropriate to us. And how do we know that? Because every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Now that is, I think that's the Father in terms of the lights being creation and the stars and the moon and that sort of thing. And although there is variableness in the stellar system in, the, in, in space, in the stars and so on, there is, there is change and there is variableness. With him there is none. There is absolutely no variableness. There's no change. He consistently gives good things. So you cannot accuse him of putting temptation in your way and causing you to sin. That's not of him. He then goes on and says also in verse number 18, just by, to conclude the point, he says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his own creatures, which means that he brought us to the birth spiritually to raise us up, not to bring us down. Okay? He wants us to be the first fruits of his creation. He wants us to be the best. So then, Malachi 3.6, James 1.17, Psalm 102, verses 24 to 27, some of these evidences of the immutability of God and its impact upon us as his people. Now let's ask some questions then. If God does not change, how are we going to explain 1 Samuel chapter 15? Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 15.
because on a first reading it appears we have a problem with everything I've said when we turn to this chapter. Okay, look at verse number uh, 11. The context being that Saul was made king and then he's being replaced by David. Okay? So Samuel's speaking to Saul about this and about the fact that he's going to be replaced as king. So verse number uh, 10, then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel. Verse 11, oh dear. It repenteth me. So who's speaking? Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel. It repenteth me that I've set up Saul to be king. He has turned back from following me. He's not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried unto the Lord all night. Okay? Look at verse number uh, 35. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, one more verse in the chapter, which really causes us confusion, I think. Verse number 28. Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, hath given it to a neighbour of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent. For he is not a man that he should repent. Now, when you read that chapter, that just, jump, or should, that just jumps out at you as being a contradiction. So twice over in the chapter, the Lord says, I repent. And then once in the chapter, it says, the Lord does not repent. So how do we reconcile this? Well, if you look at verse number 29, I think the key is in this verse. The strength of Israel will not lie nor repent. He is not a man that he should repent. So, verse number 11. God says, I regret or I repent or I change my mind. Same idea. I made Saul king. Verse 35. God says, the Lord regrets or repent or changes his mind that he made Saul king. Verse 29, it says, God will not lie or change his mind. He's not a man that he should change his mind. Now mark this. God does change, but not in the way that we think of change. When we think of change, we are thinking about something that we've got wrong. We're thinking about adjustments we have to make because of different things that happen, okay? God is not a flat personality with one emotion or no emotion. That's not true of God. God does not react in the way we react to unknown or new circumstances. He knows all things. But God acts consistent to his character. He never changes and his variations that we might describe and we begin to get difficult terminology, are part of a unified, unchanging plan that's consistent with his character, which is unchanging. Okay? So he's his purpose, he is his plans, and he is himself. These do not change. And yet, in that purpose, in those plans, in his character, he raises up Saul, and then he puts Saul down, and he raises up David. Okay? Some writer put it this way, he can and does respond differently to different circumstances. We can see that not only are these actions, responses, if you like, rooted in consistent character of love, wisdom, righteousness and power, but also in a perfect knowledge and plan, so that he never changes his mind because of unforeseen circumstances. He is the same in his perfect foreknowledge, his perfect plan, his perfect execution of that plan in all details of our life to bring about his glorious goal and purpose for us, his children. Now, if you struggle with that, join the club. But here's an example that can help illustrate it, the example of Jonah. So Jonah's going with a message to Nineveh, but Jonah doesn't want to take that message. Why? Because he knows the consistent character of God. So that Jonah seeks to flee because he knows that if the Ninevites repent of their sin, 
God will be true to his character and will not judge them. So God has declared judgment upon Nineveh. But God's character and promise to the nations is found in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 70. He says this, At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, pull it down, destroy it. God said, I might speak to a nation and say, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to uproot you. I'm going to bring evil upon you. But if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning their calamity that I plan to bring upon it. So God's character is consistent. God's plan is consistent. God is not reacting to unforeseen circumstances. God's whole plan is they're going to be judged. If they repent of their sin, they will not be judged. That's his plan. That's his purpose. Jonah knows it. So he runs away. He can't stand the Ninevites. He wants them judged. He says, if I take that message of judgment, I know what's going to happen. They're going to repent and God's going to spare them. I'm not going. That was why he ran away. And the people of Nineveh believed it. Jonah 3, verses 5 to 9. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not? God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. God repented of the evil that he had said that he would not do unto them, and he did it not. You see, that word repent means a different thing when we use it of ourselves as when we use it of God. God is saying, if they do that, then I will do this. However, if they turn from their sin, I will do that. Okay, so that's his purpose. That's his character. That is his plan. And he doesn't change from it. He's consistent to it. He's immutable in it. Okay? When we come to the Lord Jesus, it says of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if you take this broad truth of the immutability of God, and some of it is hard to understand, and some of it is hard to even know. Hard to reconcile. But when you take that principle of immutability, unchangeability, consistency, you find it's true of the Lord Jesus. He's the same. Now just think about it, he's the same. Now how many of us are the same? Now we're never, I said we're never the same. I said you never put your foot in the same river twice and then someone pointed out with the scum on top of the dam there, it's pretty likely you could put your foot in that river twice because it's not moving um, and it might need to move a wee bit more. But the idea is just this, that we all change, we're not the same. You're not the same as you were last year, I'm not the same. We're not the same as we were yesterday, we're different, it's constant change. But not with the Lord Jesus, it says he is the same. Now, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Let's go on a wee journey. Now, we're going to get to money in a moment or two. Don't worry about that. But we need to get through this first of all. Hebrews chapter 1. The unchangeability of Christ is rooted in the truth that we learned last night, which was his deity. Okay, so we established his deity last night from Scripture. Look at Hebrews 1, verse 10 through to 12. Hopefully we recognize it from Psalm 102. And thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, thou remainest, they all shall wax old as with a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, thy years shall not fail. So there is the unchangeability of Christ in contrast to creation. But who's being addressed? And thou Lord. Lord. So it is the Lord, it is God, that's the idea behind that word. God is saying to his son in verse 8 of Hebrews 1 as well, thy throne, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And when you read down Hebrews 1, the unchangeability of Christ is rooted in his deity. Okay? It comes from the fact that he is God. Now, God is the baseline of stability. And we sometimes think the created universe is the baseline of stability and the created laws which govern the universe are the baseline of stability. They're not. Jesus Christ is God. He is the baseline of stability. 
So what about his incarnation then? Now that's going to stretch you at this time in the morning. If he never changes, how come he became a man? Sure, that's a big change. Well, at the time of the Lord Jesus' incarnation, it says this, that God was manifest in flesh. And it said that the word became flesh. There is a distinction there. God was manifest in flesh. The word became flesh. Now, I'm going to deal with this a bit more later when you're a wee bit more awake. And I'm going to speak to you about what the theologians call the hypostatic union. Okay? So we'll need to kind of get some coffee in us before that, I think. But grasp this principle. This is very important. Okay, if you get this wrong, it can lead to all sorts of problems. So I'm going to express it, and then we'll try and explain it later. When the Lord Jesus became a man, it did not mean that a man became God. That's the first thing, okay? It did not mean that he lost any of his essential character or attributes. None at all. So the human did not become divine. Divine did not become human. So God did not change into a man something completely different than he eternally had been. Okay? But rather... The two natures were not confused and mixed together into some hybrid. Half God, half man. It's not what happened at his incarnation. Now this is the hard bit. The Lord Jesus in his incarnation remained fully God. Undiminished in his deity. Unchanged in his deity. Always as he had been eternally. The Son, the eternal Son, lost nothing. When he became a man, he became fully a man. In all the fullness of manhood, apart from sin. Fully God, fully man, at the same time, in the same person. And as I'm going to read to you a statement from 600 AD later, and they got it right, the theologians then. And one of their best expressions was this, fully God, fully man, without division, without separation. Now you try and grasp that. In one person, in that manger, fully God, for it pleased God that in him should all fullness dwell. All the fullness of the Godhead in him bodily as a baby. As you looked at that baby, was he anything less than a man should be? Take sin out of the equation. No. Every single aspect of created manhood is found in him. Every single aspect of eternal deity is found in him. And he's lying in a manger. Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in flesh. It's incredible. Now, the mystery of the incarnation is that he is both unchangeable God and changeable man. Grasp that. He is both unchangeable God and changeable man. Now we know that. We read of it. He grew. He increased. And he went from that baby incarnation into full manhood. In his manhood he changed. And there was development and growth Mystery of mystery. I, I, how, how could you possibly explain it? And as he grew, such is the wonder of it, such is the magnitude of it, he is essentially what he eternally has been. And yet he's growing up as a man. 
and he's experiencing things as a man that he had never experienced eternally. And now in time. Brian and I were talking, learning obedience by the things which he suffered. No one had ever spat in his face. No one had ever criticised or laid hands on him. <coughs> he had never experienced need, want or dependency. He's the self-existent Jehovah, yet he has been fed by a woman as a baby and nurtured and dependent upon her for life, it seems. You see, as you contemplate these things, they're magnificent. It's not that you should have your face shaken by them, but rather this, we ought to be amazed by what God did when he came down. It's not just a simplistic uh, Jesus in the manger story. The absolute miracle of it. And as you contemplate that, because, listen to this, because Jesus is God, he is all-powerful, he cannot be defeated. Because Jesus is God, he is the only adequate saviour of all mankind. Because Jesus is God, we are safe, we can never perish, we have eternal security. Because Jesus is God. Because he is God, we can have confidence he will empower us in our service and in our witness and walk for him. He is God. Because he is man, he's experienced what we experience. Because he is man, he can identify us in the most intimate fashion. Because he is man, he can come to our aid as a sympathetic and empathetic high priest when we reach the limits of human weakness. Because he is man, he could die for us and rise again from the dead for us. Now, how do we understand this? I'm going to dig into it more later. How can we understand this? The only answer is an expression of the Bible. It is a work of God in himself, and therefore it is marvelous in our eyes. It's beyond human explanation or comprehension. But to know it ought to cause us to worship. And as with all that God does, it really essentially transcends our understanding. Now, we ought not to be put off. We ought to rejoice that there are things that we cannot understand. You know, sometimes we think that if we can't grasp it, God can't do it. Think about that. If we can't grasp it and work it out and explain it, obviously God can't do it. It's the other way about. The fact is just this. The fact that it's beyond our comprehension has got the whole fingerprint of God upon it. It's so marvellous. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, what's that got to do with money? Everything. Absolutely everything. You see, all of these things about Christ have to do with the practicalities of our lives. And it's only when we get right on the things of Christ that all these things in our life will find their true place. So what's it got to do with money? Well, back to Hebrews 13. Now don't worry about that if you're still working away at that in your mind. Don't worry about that. We're going to revisit that. But come now to the practicalities that flow from the immutability of Christ. Hebrews 13 verse 5. So the Hebrew writer is talking about very practical issues. And he says in verse 5, let your conversation, your manner of life be without covetousness. And be content. So there's two things there. The first is, in your life, exclude covetousness. Now, that is our responsibility. God puts it on us. So he said, as people, remove covetousness from your life. Now, covetousness generally in our society has to do with things. It may have to do with experience or place or... Um, relationships so it may be we covet we seek that which we do not possess or have any right to and we seek it in order to gain it and that's the idea of covetousness so it may well be we seek a promotion or we seek respect as we feel we're deserved it or we seek a, a relationship that we don't have and it's not ours to have um, but usually on a very base level it's stuff it's sparkly stuff it's usually money based in our culture 
So he says, do not have covetousness. It's, and then in verse, and the, and the verse goes on and says this, and be content with such things as you have. So he's really saying, look, the idea is, it's not to exclude ambition. It's not to exclude, exclude desire per se. But it is the motivation behind these things. And if it's motivated from a basic lack of contentment, so that covetousness doesn't just come from nowhere. It comes from you looking at your circumstances, your relationships, your money, your job, your family, your whatever, and saying, do you know what? I don't like it. It's not enough. It's not what I want. So I'm going to change it. And I'm going to change it in a way that's inappropriate. So I'm going to covet Okay, so I'm going to look at what I possess and I'm going to think and dream about getting other stuff. I'm going to look at other people who've got relationships and family that I don't have and I'm going to obsess about that. And I'm going to pursue inappropriately these things. Take it into whatever sphere. It's something that can afflict us all. It doesn't matter who we are. So he says... Beware of that. Remember the desire to be rich is, is a destroying desire. Be content with what you have. Now, he then goes on in verse number six and look at the connecting words. So that we may boldly say. So if you take covetousness out of the equation and you bring in contentment into the equation, you then are in a position to say something that otherwise you cannot say. What? The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. So that if you are content with what you have, you then can ascribe that to God and say, the Lord is my helper. If you are coveting things, you cannot ascribe those things to God. Okay, so you covet a promotion you covet a change you covet whatever you know it's covetous it's in there it's like a root and it's, it's grinding away and you then start making your moves and you do what needs to be done and you get it and you say the lord has blessed me abundantly say no he hasn't you helped yourself you cannot say the lord is my helper you cannot so the writer says, if you are content, you will be able with boldness to say, the Lord is my helper. And secondly, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So what you're doing with contentment is you are rooting your life choices in God. That's where the root of them all are. You are expecting and anticipating and depending upon his help and no matter what man will do to you you cannot be shaken from that okay there is your solid secure stability if you are helping yourself in a way that's inappropriate you don't have that you will fear what man will do let me give you an illustration if you're gambling with your money on the stock market Okay, you're playing the stock market, you're gambling. And you are not making investments as a long-term, sensible financial provision for you and your family. You're gambling. And you choose to do that and you're moving money and you're taking risks and you're doing this and the other sort of thing. And then the stock market crashes. You fear very much what man will do to you. You fear very much. You wake up at night worrying about these things. What are you worrying about? You're worrying what man will do. The twists and turns of it all. Take that example, apply it to a whole raft of things. And if your confidence is not in the help of the Lord, you will fear what man will do. That variable that you base your life upon out with your control and that variable that is so inconsistent as opposed to the stability of the unchangeability of Christ. Because you know exactly what he will do. Because he's the same yesterday, today and forever. 
So in verse number six, he says, the boldness of the Christian in relation to stuff, to money, is found in God being at the center of it all. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now he's not finished, but look at verse seven. He then speaks about the example of others that have gone before. Remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God. So he said, look, you look to more mature Christians in your life. Those who are spiritually mature and are over you in that they are guiding you spiritually. Now that could be elders in your assembly, but it's not restricted to that. So look to these older Christians. Look to these more mature Christians and look at their life. Now, just take a moment to think about that. Think about older Christians that you know who have lived a God-centered, faithful life. Maybe your parents, you're very blessed if it is. Maybe your grandparents. Maybe people in your assembly, maybe people in a community that you know of. Doesn't matter. Think about them. Think about people you know who did not base their life in covetousness. Who didn't grasp after everything who were kind and caring and giving. Think about them. Okay? That's what he says. Remember them. Call them into your mind. These are the ones who spoke unto you the word of God. Whose faith follow? Now why does he say faith? Whose faith follow? Because they lived their life based upon their faith in God. Their dependence upon God. Then he says, what I want you to do is consider the end of their conversation. Their manner of life. Work out how their life has gone. So think about how their life went. Was it good or bad? Was it a good choice they made to live like that or a bad? Were they content? Contrast that with the people that pursued wealth and were covetous and went after these things. Think in your mind. Contrast them both. The reason he does that is simple. If the Lord was their helper, he will be yours. How their life worked out will be how your your life works out. How do we know that? Because Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. The immutability of Christ guarantees this. That if you live a life of faith, you will live a life of contentment. Okay, this is not to do with old folk living a simple life and things being more simple in their day. This is to do with thinking of the believers who invested their life in faith, who were not covetous, in their circumstances, think about how their life worked out, and that's exactly how your life can work out. Because Jesus Christ is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. If he was their helper, he will be our helper. He will be exactly the same to us. So when you think about money, when you think about stuff, when you think about our world that's obsessed by this kind of thing, Let us not lose sight of this great truth of the immutability of Christ. Let us remember how that looked in a generation that's gone before, who are more spiritually mature than we are, who've got life's experience behind us, and whose lives, let's be honest, we admire. We sometimes don't think we could ever be like it, but we admire them. Well, there's no mystery to their life. Their life was the fact that they looked to the Lord for help rather than to themselves. And if you do that, then you will not fear what man shall do unto you, because Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, forever, his immutability underpins the whole issue of covetousness and contentment. But he's not finished. He then connects it on to verse number nine. Be not carried away with divers and strange doctrines. Now, he then speaks about false teaching. And again, the immutability of Christ impacts that. Because false 
teaching, he warns about 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, and so on. And it's a very simple point that I'll finish with. What was true of Christ yesterday is true of Christ today and is true of Christ tomorrow. Any new doctrine about the person of Christ is false. Let's just establish that. There is nothing new to be learned by the church concerning Jesus Christ 2,000 years after divine revelation. I can say it with confidence. You might think you've got a great insight and you've got this wonderful new truth you discover. Just read enough and you discover that many people have seen it before you. And it's a very good affirmation of what you've learned from the Bible. Okay? I don't think I've ever met a theological genius, I'm sorry, but I don't think I've ever met someone in my experience. We're all learning from those who've gone before, from those who have studied and learned divine truth before. And yes, it's endless. And yes, we know all of that. But listen, anyone that comes and says, I've learned something absolutely new about Christ that no one's ever discovered, you say, okay, go and tell someone else. Because that is not going to be true. It's as simple as that. Be very wary of anyone that tries to introduce you to new things about Christ. Okay? It's all in Scripture, and we're 2,000 years of theologians and Bible students investigating these things, and we learn from them. Do not be carried away with strange doctrines about Christ. There's nothing new about him. He's the same. He's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Trust that God will bless his word to us. Let's pray.